I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Again I say, let no one think me foolish, and if you do, receive me even as foolish, that I may boast a little. That which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would, but as fool in foolishness and this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being wise, so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in dangers of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Heavenly Father, oftentimes um, you call upon us to understand more about the suffering of your Son when we suffer from insults, sometimes monetary, sometimes from things happening that seem too difficult to handle. And yet we look at Christ and we realize that you have all things in control and that we are to be good, faithful servants no matter what we face and to stay true to your word. Help us this morning and be with Tom as he shares with us and help our hearts be receptive to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. In his commentary on this passage and what I consider the best chapter of this commentary by Kent Hughes, um, he makes a, a fascinating comparison between Paul's sanctified resume that we find in this passage and another document that was very well known in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. That other document was written by Augustus Caesar, the emperor of Rome who reigned from 31 BC until 14 AD. So he was the emperor of Rome when Jesus was born. The document in question is, is Caesar's public eulogy to himself which he wrote to be recited at his own funeral. 
The title of the Latin document translated into English is The Deeds of the Divine Augustus. That should tell you something about what's in it, right? Uh, after reading what Hugh, Hugh's mention of that article, I couldn't resist going and finding it and reading the detail of that document. And as I started reading it, I couldn't help smiling. And by the time I finished it, I was laughing out loud. Here are just a few excerpts. It's great. At the age of 19, on my own responsibility and at my own expense, I raised an army with which I successfully championed the liberty of the republic when it was oppressed by the tyranny of a faction. On that account, the Senate passed decrees in my honor, enrolling me in its order, assigning me the right to give my opinion among the consulars. I undertook many civil and foreign wars by land and sea throughout the world, and as victor, I spared the lives of all citizens who asked for mercy. I celebrated two ovations and three curule triumphs. At a curule triumph, you were, the, the emperor was awarded a chair. It was real fancy, and it, it celebrated a victory that he had. And was 21 times saluted as imperator, which means emperor. The Senate decreed still more triumphs to me, all of which I declined. I laid the bay leaves with which my fasces were wreathed in the capital after fulfilling all the vows which I had made in each war. And I'm going to show you. That is an, a Roman fasces. It's a bundle of rods like those that are used to administer beatings wrapped around an axe like those that are used to lop off heads. Uh, Augustus was, in effect, he, was, he, he had the marvelous privilege of laying after a mighty victory, he had, uh, when they put this thing back in the great showcase, he got to lay the wreath of leaves around it himself as a celebration of his, his victory. Basically, it was a, a portable punishment kit, uh, and it signified the fearsomeness of, of the Roman ruler for all to behold. He goes on, he says, and these are just excerpts, but he says, four times I assisted the treasury with my own money. I want you to notice that four times, five times, three times. He says, four times I assisted the treasury with my own money. I gave three gladiatorial games in my own name and five in that of my sons or grandsons. And at these games, some 10,000 men took part in combat. Twice in my own name and a third time in that of my grandson, I presented to the people displays by athletes summoned from all parts. I produced shows in my own name four times and in place of other magistrates, 23 times. I made the sea peaceful and free of pirates. In my 13th consulship, the Senate, the equestrian order, and the whole people of Rome gave me the title of father of my country and resolved that this should be inscribed in the porch of my house and in the Cura Julia and in the Forum Augustum below the chariot, which had been set there in my honor by decree of the Senate. At the time of writing, I am in my 76th year. It wouldn't surprise me if Augustus at some point had commissioned an engraver to put on his tombstone, most fearsome, humble, and benevolent ruler ever to have graced the earth. I suspect that, uh, that Augustus Caesar's extravagant tribute to self would strike even most unbelievers today as over-the-top egotism.
But when it comes to long lists of human accomplishments and virtues, it strikes me that it's not all that far removed from the introductions that often precede speeches at seminary graduations, academic Bible conferences, and churches all over this country. When I see the list of abbreviations that often follow the names of prominent Christian writers, I can't help but think of Jesus' indictment against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That is one of the most prominent themes from cover to cover in the Bible. He who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted by God. Just once, I'd like to attend a large Christian event where the moderator says, I'd like to introduce Bill. He's a fellow sheep in God's flock who has suffered faithfully for Jesus. He has something to share with you that he needs to know just as much as you do. That is the spirit of the resume that Paul sets before the Corinthians in this marvelous, marvelous chapter. Before he gets to that resume, he has one piece of business he has to attend to. Attend to. In verses 16 to 21, he makes very sure that the saints understand that the last thing that he wants to encourage in them is any form of boasting in the accomplishments or experiences of mere men. He's about to give the Corinthians a kind of apostolic resume but it's in order to protect them from the deceivers, the false prophets who would come among them, asserting their own worth. But before he presents his resume, he wants to make real sure that the saints know what he thinks of resumes to begin with. And the simple fact is that he finds the resumes of mere men to be altogether unimpressive, and that includes even his own. He says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish that I also may boast a little. That which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. When Paul says he is about to boast according to the flesh, as his detractors have been boasting, it's important to recognize but that, that what he's talking about here, both their boasting and Paul's boasting in this passage draw attention to things that mortal men have done and experienced. And it is for that very reason that Paul expresses 
his disdain even for his own sanctified boast. But his motive is godly. In verse 20, he drives home the reason that the Corinthians should be willing to permit this boast. He says, if they have so readily received the boasting of men who treat them really badly, they should be willing to indulge a bit of boasting from one who has done so much to serve them and to love them on Christ's behalf. The false prophets that were making accusations against Paul were not nice guys. They enslave and devour the saints by offering a pathetic counterfeit of real spiritual blessings. They take advantage of the saints, acting for their own personal gain and exaltation at the expense of the saints. Nothing about their motivation is godly or loving. When Paul refers to such men hitting the saints in the face, I don't take that as an exaggeration. How often in the history of men and nations and religious organizations, religious movements, have groups of people, small and large, happily followed violent tyrants, elevating them to positions of of great power and influence. All too many men have been allowed by others to practice winning through intimidation with astonishing effectiveness, sometimes filling churches. And bear in mind that these were the same men who were accusing Paul of being forceful in his letters, but spineless when he was face to face with the saints. Paul was not a contentious or heavy-handed servant of Christ. He was indeed a servant of the saints, filled with Christ's own love for Christ's beloved bride. When it was necessary for for Christ's sake, for Paul to correct the saints, he often did so, and he talks about this in the passage we looked at earlier, he often does the correcting through letters, praying always for a godly response of repentance and submission to Christ. And his desire, his earnest desire was that on the rare occasions where he got to be face-to-face with these saints that he loved so dearly, his time with them could be spent in sweet fellowship instead of correction. So he tried to do the correcting offline. This, after all, is the same apostle who repeatedly in his letters exhorts the saints to greet one another with a holy kiss. Such was not the way of the false prophets. When Paul says in verse 21, to my shame I say that we have been weak by comparison, I am convinced that he's speaking with the same kind of biting sarcasm that that we saw earlier in chapter 11. The main thing that I hope we see in the first six verses of this morning's passage is that Paul very deliberately prefaces the boasts that he is about to present with a very strong caveat. And the point of that caveat is that boasting in anything pertaining to men should be an exceptional practice, an uncommon practice for the people of God. It was necessary here because of the boasts and accusations being made by these false apostles in Corinth, but it's not a desirable state of affairs as the rule. 
In the second part of verse 21, Paul says, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, and he says, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. He's saying, you guys, you false prophets, you boast a lot. I can play in that sandbox too. But if you're expecting me to cower in a corner, you're going to need bigger shovels. Paul begins by pointing out three boasts of the false prophets that he can readily match point for point. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Paul was an ethnic Hebrew, a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as his detractors were. He was also a devoutly religious Israelite. Nobody knew or observed the law of Moses better than Paul did. In his defense before the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem in Acts 22, Paul would say later, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this about his own way of life during the days leading up to his miraculous conversion. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. In Philippians chapter 3, speaking of that same pre-conversion period in his life, he says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. When it came to credentials that Jews considered impressive, Paul put these guys to shame. But he's willing to play on this turf only very briefly before he turns to a radically different kind of credential. I find it intriguing that even in a most, mostly Gentile city like Corinth, it was Jews who were seeking to usurp Paul's apostolic authority, not Gentiles. Everywhere that Paul went throughout the Roman Empire, it was those who were closest to the truth who presented the greatest threat to the advancement of the truth. In every generation, beloved, it has always been religious people who are the greatest threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our own day, it is people who claim to be most zealous for justice and love who present the greatest opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the unconverted soul, they, they may be militantly zealous for what they deem to be good and godly. But the ones that they demand that people trust and follow are merely fellow sinners rather than the sinless Son of God. At the beginning of verse 23, Paul adds one final point of comparison between himself 
and these false prophets. And this one actually cuts to the chase. Are they servants of Christ? I far more. And when he says I far more or I more so, he's not putting himself in their category. He's simply priming the pump for what's about to come. But Paul knows that he's pushing the boundaries of godly propriety to draw attention to himself at all. Even to his faithful service on Christ's behalf. So he adds the parenthetical declaration, I speak as if insane. In the second half of verse 23, Paul launches into his divinely ordained boast with the objective of cutting off the arrogant claims of the liars, the deceivers, the false apostles who were threatening the well-being of these saints in Corinth whom Paul considers to be uh, his own spiritual children. I say again, he brought the gospel to Corinth first, and he considers these people to be his, his spiritual children. Paul's central assertion in this marvelous passage is very simply stated in the verse that comes immediately after this section that we're about to look at, and that's in verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. That theme carries well into chapter 12, and it was already addressed in chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5, and chapter 10. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. But, but beloved, Paul is not talking about weakness that God has to somehow work around in order to make use of Paul. Any more than, than he would speak of strength that proceeds from himself. Paul is talking about weakness strategically ordained by God. Just as he did back in chapter 4, verse 7, when he said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from us. That's strategic weakness. Here in chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, Paul lays out a carefully constructed list of the many afflictions that he has personally experienced. Episodes of very real suffering that have come upon him precisely because he has kept the apostolic assignment given to him by the resurrected Christ. As I read Paul's stunning curriculum vitae in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29, by the way, that's what they call resumes now, curriculum vitae, curricula vitae, CVs. Consider how starkly this contrasts with Caesar's ode to self. That contrast is nothing short of magnificent. Paul says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent treading water in the sea. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I think that last one is is the greatest of those dangers that he lists. 
I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern. Some translations render that anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my burning concern? That's the word, without my burning concern. As I, as I read through and pondered this passage over and over the last couple of weeks, one of the first things that struck me is that so many of the episodes of suffering that Paul points out in these verses are never mentioned in the narrative of his ministry in the book of Acts. I can't help thinking that this list itself isn't even the half of it. And that suffering was not finished yet. His marathon was not over. Another thing that struck me is that this list includes both physical suffering directly inflicted upon Paul by other men and Physical suffering that did not come by the hands of men. Suffering that included repeated exposure to the elements, repeated and prolonged times of hunger and thirst, raging rivers that he had to cross, frequent threat of attack by animals in the wilderness. But the cause was the same. The cause of the countless physical dangers and deprivations that Paul suffered at the hands of men was the same as the cause of the deprivations that he suffered in, from nature, from creation. And it was his love for Christ and men put into real, tangible action at every opportunity. If we spend our lives in air-conditioned buildings with hot and cold water and plenty of electricity, we're not going to know what this is about. As in the eulogy of Augustus, Paul groups certain experiences by the number of times that they occurred. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Eight times in one verse, verse 26, he uses the word dangers. But to my mind, the most stunning number that Paul presents in this passage is a simple numeric formula associated with Jewish floggings, whippings. In verse 24, a literal rendering of the verse is, five times I received from the Jews 40 less one. 40 less one. He doesn't even say floggings. He doesn't even say whippings, but they knew what he was talking about. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 3, the law of Moses limited the maximum number of lashes that could be dispersed in a public flogging to 40. In Paul's day, if the man appointed by the Jewish temple authorities to administer a flogging went beyond 40, the flogger himself would be subject to the same punishment. So, you know, if I were him, I'd get a family member to help me count. In order to ensure that such a miscount didn't happen, one lash was always withheld from the maximum sentence, hence 40 minus 1. 
in an age in which there was no such thing as actual antibiotics. Some men died a slow and painful death after only one round of that terrible punishment. But by the time Paul wrote this letter, he had suffered that punishment from the hands of the Jewish authorities five times, a total of 195 lashes. It's no wonder that Paul says to the saints in Galatia, in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And that's an excellent translation, the brand marks of Jesus. The word that he uses there is commonly used to refer to a visible scar or tattoo that was intentionally made in the skin of a slave to identify the slave's master, to associate that slave with his master. By the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian saints, his body was covered with the brandings, the physical marks of his faithful bond service to his beloved master, Jesus Christ. But just as with all that you and I suffer for following Jesus, those marks did not distinguish Paul from his master. They identified him with his master. Paul shared the indelible physical scars of godly submission with the one who had laid down his own life to save this man who to his final days called himself the chiefest of sinners. In verses 28 and 29, Paul brings us to the pinnacle of the marks that he bore for Christ. The greatest of those scars were not physical. He says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my burning concern? The greatest scars that Paul bore for the sake of Christ's beloved were not born on his body, but on his heart. Those deepest wounds came because he spent his life in the trenches with the saints whom he so dearly loved. Their joys were his joys. Their sorrows were his sorrows. Their struggles were his struggles. Their sins against one another and the divisions that those sins created between them scarred him more profoundly than any punisher's whip could ever scar him. That's what love does. But friends, those scars could easily have been avoided if he had simply chosen to live the way far too many Christians choose to live. Insulated from other people's suffering. That life was never an option for Paul and it is not an option for us. Far too many Christians busy themselves with minimizing their own suffering. Doing their level best to avoid taking on any suffering except that which is beyond their ability to avoid. They expend a fortune in time and effort and money drawing precise boundaries 
to constrain what they are willing to suffer for others and what they are willing to allow themselves to suffer at the hands of others. The thought of willingly entering into the suffering of others is unthinkable to so many Christians. The inevitable casualty of creating and enforcing those protective, self-protective boundaries comes in two forms. Loss of relationship and loss of usefulness. Christians who cling to predictable lives that allow only the most carefully calculated risks consign themselves to be spectators, not runners. To be what J.I. Packer calls balconiers, watching the race from a distance. What they miss out on in the process is genuine, rich relationship with God and with His people. And joyful usefulness, miraculous usefulness in the hands of God. Paul was a world-class marathoner in that glorious race. And through Paul's powerful example and forceful exhortation, God is calling you and me to be world-class marathoners in that great and glorious race. To press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I said earlier that the main point of this passage is simply stated in verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. That isn't false humility. That isn't Paul being self-deprecating. That became Paul's new and defining reality on the day that Jesus blinded him to make him see. I've read this passage countless times in my Christian life, but for whatever reason, I didn't previously make the powerful connection between the point of this passage and the historical event that Paul places right at the end of chapter 11. Listen to verses 31 to 33 again. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eratos the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. The first mention of the other mention of that event in the Bible is found in the same passage that records Paul's miraculous encounter with the resurrected Christ that changed him forever. Acts chapter 9. As the events in that chapter unfold, Paul, who was at that point still known as Saul of Tarsus, was the hatchet man for the Sanhedrin. The same Jewish court that had labeled Jesus as condemned under Jewish law and demanded his crucifixion under Roman law. Saul, with official papers handed to him by the Sanhedrin, was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus on a mission to arrest more Christians in that city and to bring them back in bonds to stand before the Sanhedrin. And hopefully, as Saul saw it, to be sentenced to death. If you think that it was less than that, read Acts chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 22, verses 4 and 5, and chapters 26, verse 10. Paul wanted them dead. As Saul walked along that road, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him in a literally 
blinding light. In that encounter, and the light was Jesus. In that encounter, Jesus gave Saul a spiritual heart transplant that radically changed absolutely everything that had been true of him. Later that day, at Jesus' instruction, Saul was led to the home of a Christian man in Damascus named Ananias. I'm going to read a little part of the end of Acts 9. And Ananias departed and entered the house. This is starting at verse 17. Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on Paul said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from Paul's eye, Saul's eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he arose and he was baptized. And he took food and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He, Jesus, is the Son of God. And all of those hearing him continued to be amazed and they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name, on this name, and who had come here to Damascus for the very purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That was his thing. He'd go to the Old Testament, he'd prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Savior. Now, here's the part that Paul's talking about at the end of, first, of 2 Corinthians 11. And when many days had elapsed, we don't know how many, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with Saul. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. By the way, it's the same word that's used with the baskets that Jesus filled with the overflow of bread and fish in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Big enough for a human being to be in. Why does Paul now mention that event that had occurred so many years earlier in Damascus? Well, fleeing for his life in Damascus that day had served as a vivid memorial for Paul that he would never forget. A constant reminder that Jesus had forever changed the object of his zeal and the content of his boasting. Never again would Paul boast of his own education or ancestry or any kind of merit that matters in the eyes of men. The only thing about himself to which he would ever again assign worth was his participation in the suffering of his Savior and Lord. When it came to the relentlessness and the duration of that suffering, the Apostle Paul arguably received a larger share in the dying of Christ than any other apostle of Jesus. Listen to Paul's words from Philippians 3. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day, 
of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The word's actually stronger than that. The word is excrement. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not talking about earning resurrection through suffering. He's talking about getting to resurrection through suffering. Both are guaranteed to the child of God. But you can't get to the second without going through the first. That's the way it works. Suffering with and for Christ during our brief time here under the curse is the necessary and inevitable path to resurrection glory. It is the only path. Paul declares the very same thing in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. He says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. That's how it works. As I pondered this marvelous passage, I couldn't help thinking how starkly it contradicts the promises that fill so many sermons and books today from men and women who call themselves representatives of Christ. If you want to write a book that will fill one of those whole palette displays that grab your attention when you first walk into the Christian bookstore, this theme won't get it. It won't get you there. It will never be wildly popular to tell professing Christians that the normal Christian life is a life of suffering like Jesus suffered and being despised and persecuted by powerful people like Jesus was when he was here the first time. But if there is any truth, if there is any truth that is absolutely indispensably linked to miraculous usefulness and mighty power in your earthly life as ambassadors for Jesus, it is this truth. The abundant Christian life that Jesus promised to His redeemed ones is for a time a life of suffering for Jesus, with Jesus. That time lasts as long as we have breath in these mortal bodies. It's not over until then. What makes that life abundant 
is that it binds our hearts to our Savior and Master in this life more profoundly than anything else. I'll close with the words of Paul's brother in Christ and fellow apostle, Peter, from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14. I've said this before, but if you don't know this passage, get to know it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. (laughs) But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Did you hear that? To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. That means a whole lot. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, beloved, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. Do you want that? You want the spirit of glory and of God to rest on you? This is how it happens. Thank you, loving Father, for making us to share in the suffering and death of Jesus as the path to our everlasting share in His glory. That suffering is our share in His glory during the brief time You've given us to be as Christ in the world the brief time before we stand in His presence with the curse forever undone. We give all glory, honor, and praise to Him alone. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.